Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Last year, the Islamic extremist group ISIS, or in Arabic, Daesh, took control of large parts of northern and western Iraq. Its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is said to have been proclaimed as caliph by his followers. This title has the meaning of the successor to the Prophet Muhammad and spiritual leader of the entire Muslim world. Therefore, there can theoretically only be one caliph at any one time. In the 930s, the leader of Muslim Spain, Abdel Rahman III, made the same bold claim, demonstrating great confidence in the power of the kingdom that he led. At the end of the last podcast, I said that the next episode would be on the First Crusade. After further research, I decided now would instead be a good time to tell the story of early medieval Spain, the splendid Caliphate of Cordova, and the gradual reconquest, or reconquista, of the peninsula by the Christians. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the fall of Toledo in 1085, part one of three. The Iberian Peninsula appears on the map as one of the most clearly defined geographical entities on the European continent. It is bounded on three and a half sides by the sea, in anti-clockwise direction, the Mediterranean, the Straits of Gibraltar, the Atlantic Ocean and the Bay of Biscay. Its sole land connection to the continent is the Pyrenees Mountains, which for centuries have acted as a barrier, though not always an impenetrable one, to communication between France and Spain. To the south, the Straits of Gibraltar separate Spain from Africa by less than nine miles at its narrowest point. Although the region appears as a self-contained geographical unit, its natural internal divisions, most notably its numerous mountain ranges, have historically impeded the achievement of political unity. Its average altitude is higher than any country in Europe other than Switzerland. The central nucleus of the region is composed of a vast, rather desolate plateau called the Meseta. This is bordered to the northwest by the Cantabrian Mountains, which serve to shut away the coastal territories of Asturias, Galicia and northern Portugal. The mountains of Soria and Teruel form the eastern border of the Meseta and the Sierra Morena its southern limit. Running through the southern region of Andalusia is the mountain range called the Cordillera Betica, which runs south of the river Guadalquivir. As well as its mountains, Spain's rivers have played an important role in her medieval history, 
for the reconquest can be seen as a gradual advance from one river frontier to the next. Their locations can be seen in a map provided on the podcast website www.historyeurope.net Of the rivers which flow westwards, the river Minho rises in Galicia before forming the northern boundary of Portugal and Spain. Further south, the river Duero travels 485 miles through Old Castile, Leon and Valladolid before reaching the Atlantic at Porto. Next, the Tagus flows 565 miles from the province of Guadalajara through Toledo and Lisbon. Further south still, the river Guadiana originates in the central province of Ciudad Real and courses 510 miles, where it forms part of today's border of Spain and Portugal, before emptying into the Gulf of Cadiz. And the Guadalquivir rises in the province of Jaén before passing through Cordova and Seville, and then turning south towards the Atlantic. The only great river to flow eastwards is the Ebro, which runs south to the Pyrenees, starting in the province of Santander and running 465 miles through Aragon and its capital Zaragoza, before emptying into the Mediterranean at Tortosa. Historically, the Iberian Peninsula was part of the Roman Empire until the 5th century, when barbarian tribes swept through and occupied the region. The most powerful of the tribes were the Visigoths, who by the end of the 7th century had established effective government over the entire peninsula. Their capital, Toledo, is situated virtually in the very geographic centre of the region, 80 kilometres south of modern-day Madrid. While the Visigoths, numbering perhaps 200,000 to 300,000, became the military ruling class, they did not radically alter the old Hispano-Roman culture. Rather, as a minority, they became assimilated quite harmoniously, adopting the Latin language, the Orthodox Christian religion, and the imperial administrative system. The Hispano-Romans, such as St Isidore of Seville, the greatest scholar of the period, appear to accept the Visigoths as their own, and take patriotic pride in recording their political and military achievements. Visigothic rule came to an abrupt end in 711, when a Muslim army arrived from northern Africa. They defeated and killed King Rodrigo at the Battle of Guadalete, and within a very short period of time controlled the entire peninsula, except for the north-western corner called Asturias. Known collectively as the Moors, the leaders of the invaders were mostly Arabs, but the majority were Berbers, natives of northern Africa, recently converted to Islam. The region under their control became known as Al-Andalus, which is the origin of the name of Andalusia, the name of southern Spain today, and their capital became the city of Cordova. 
the Moors went on to launch expeditions into and beyond the Pyrenees, in 720 capturing Narbonne on the French Mediterranean coast. The Franks, united under the leadership of Charles Martel, proved far tougher opposition than the disunited Visigoth leaders. They defeated a Muslim invasion force in 732 at the Battle of Tours, marking the most northerly advance of the Muslims. In succeeding years, Charles Martel's son, Pepin the Short, retook Narbonne and pushed the Muslims back behind the Pyrenees. Pepin's successors, including his son Charlemagne, attempted to expand across the Pyrenees, and although they were unable to penetrate as far as the river Ebro, they did manage to form a number of Frankish-style counties. These included, among others, Girona, Urgel, Aragon and Barcelona, which together constituted the so-called Spanish March of the Carolingian Empire. Being far from Frankish authority, they enjoyed considerable autonomy, even more so when the Carolingian Empire fragmented and became weakened in the late 9th century. They stayed, however, within the cultural sphere of the Franks, adopting art, architecture, liturgical practices and laws from their northern neighbours. The other centres of Christian resistance were the small Basque region of Navarra and a not much larger kingdom of Styrius. The Navarrese, from their capital in Pamplona, jealously guarded their independence despite the best efforts of their neighbours to subdue them. In 720, the leader of the Asturians was the almost legendary Peleo, about whom the earliest testimony is given by the Chronicle of Albeda, written in the 9th century. The later chronicle of Alfonso III describes Peleo as the grand-nephew of King Rodrigo, in an attempt to link the Visigothic and Asturian monarchies but it seems more likely he was simply the leader of a local uprising. The sources record that a Muslim expedition were sent to crush Peleo and his followers, who fled to the caves of Covadonga to make their last stand. The Asturians, taking advantage of their knowledge of the local terrain, defeated the Muslim enemy and killed the enemy commander. For the Muslim leadership, it was regarded as a minor skirmish, but among the Asturians, the Battle of Covadonga became a symbol of Christian resistance to Islam, and the traditional date from which the Reconquista begins. Under the leadership of Peleo's son-in-law, Alfonso I, the tiny base was broadened, and the kingdom of Asturias became a reality. A revolt among the Berbers in 740 distracted the Muslim rulers enough to allow Alfonso to extend his rule over Galicia, northern Portugal, Cantabria and La Rioja. The frontier zone between the Muslims and Asturians became established along the river Duero. Lacking sufficient forces to occupy the whole region abandoned by the Muslims, Alfonso I laid waste to the Duero Valley, which for many years remained a no-man's land between the two forces. 
For the first years of Muslim rule in Spain, the local rulers were governors assigned from the distant capital of the Umayyad Caliphate in Damascus. When the Abbasid dynasty overthrew the Umayyads in 750 and moved the Muslim capital to Baghdad, they attempted to murder all their rivals. One member of the Umayyad family, Abdul Rahman, a grandson of the Caliph Hisham, survived and fled to the furthest outreach of Muslim rule in Spain. On arrival, he succeeded in gathering enough support to take control of the Muslim capital in Spain, Cordova. There he was proclaimed Emir, transforming Al-Andalus into an independent kingdom and the new home of the exiled Umayyad dynasty. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Over the next years, Abdul Rahman I worked tirelessly to secure the position he had won in the face of numerous conspiracies and rebellions. The Berber population who had supported him initially became his most persistent antagonists, so much so that he had little time to devote to the kingdom of Asturias, which was anyway not one of his highest priorities. By the time of his death, in 788, Abdul Rahman had succeeded in establishing orderly government in an independent emirate which he had ruled for 32 years. He also laid the foundations for the future greatness of Cordova and began construction of the great mosque of the city, which still stands, though today is converted to a church. In the century following his death, the Umayyad dynasty retained its grip of power. As the throne passed from father to son, and several of the emirs enjoyed long reigns, the population became accustomed to the hereditary rule of the dynasty. During periods of relative stability, expeditions were sent to ravage the Christian territories, but in periods when the emir was occupied putting down local rebellions, Alfonso II, King of Asturias, from 791 to 843, took advantage by establishing order in his own lands. In his capital at Oviedo, according to the chronicle of Al-Belida, Alfonso, quote, established all things in the entire order of the Goths, both in the church and the palace as it had been in Toledo, 
end quote. Although there was no direct connection between the Visigothic and Asturian kingdoms, the Visigothic tradition remained alive. A significant event during Alfonso's reign was the discovery of a tomb, supposedly that of the Apostle St. James, said to have evangelised Spain centuries before. A church was erected on the site which became known as Santiago de Compostela and became a popular destination for many pilgrims from across Europe. This eventually contributed to a broadening of cultural and commercial relations between Spain and Northern Europe and provided a boost to the morale of the Asturians, strengthening their will to resist the Muslim enemy. Some Christians within Muslim-held lands emigrated to Asturias or the Spanish marches. Most, however, remained, and these people became referred to as Mozarabs. Although they resisted conversion to Islam, the Mozarabs adopted certain aspects of Arabic culture and learnt the Arabic language. And despite being Catholic Christians, they retained certain local customs and rituals which differed from those promoted by the papacy and their principal secular allies, the Franks. Although they enjoyed freedom of worship and a degree of self-government under Islamic protection, the Mozarabs were clearly looked upon by the local Muslims as their inferiors. The Christians, for their part, developed an active hatred of the Moors, who they regarded as foreign intruders. The historian Joseph O'Callaghan, on his history of medieval Spain, describes the works of two contemporaries, a priest named Eulogius and his friend, the learned layman, Paulus Alvarez, who documented Christian resistance. Both men, he writes, quote, argued that the Christians were constantly harassed by the Muslims, that they were subject to burdensome tributes, that their churches were destroyed and their priests subjected to public vilification, and even stoning when they passed through the streets of the city. They were especially dismayed by the loss of so many of the faithful to Islam. Mixed marriages seemed to have been frequently, particularly between Christian women and Muslim men. The children of these unions were raised as Muslims. They also decreed the impact of Islamic culture upon young Christians who neglected their own heritage in order to study Arabic literature and to imitate Arabic customs. End quote. In contrast, Richard Fletcher, on his book on Moorish Spain, suggests a relatively more harmonious relationship between Muslims and Christians. He notes that conversions to Islam came about not by means of missionary pressure, but through the nudging of other social forces. For example, if a prominent person in the village went over to Islam, perhaps following marriage into a Muslim family, then friends, kinsfolk and neighbours may follow. Also, the adoption of Islam would have opened doors to opportunities for employment in the expanding Moorish bureaucratic government. Fletcher adds that the higher rates of tax paid by Christians in comparison with Muslims may even have been an active disincentive for attempts at mass conversion by the government. 
Personally, I disagree with the last point. Governments generally tend to place higher taxes on things they wish to discourage, in this case Christianity. What was more important to the rulers than a bit more cash in the short term was loyalty to their administration. Since Islam was central to their very identity and sense of legitimacy, there could be no better way of displaying loyalty than becoming a Muslim. In comparison with North Africa, another region recently conquered by the Arabs, the level of conversion to Islam was less rapid and more superficial. Most probably, while many individuals converted readily and others fiercely resisted, a significant number in the middle would have gone along with whatever seemed the easiest option at the time. Besides, the ethnic and cultural map was far more complex than simply Muslim and Christian. As well as revolts among the natives, the Arab leaders also had an uneasy relationship with the Berber population. The Berbers formed the bulk of the invaders and came over to Spain in several waves of immigration. In all, they numbered several hundreds of thousands, much less than the seven million or so native Spanish. The number of Arab invaders, most of whom entered Spain during the first few decades of Muslim rule, is estimated by Angus McKay in his book Spain in the Middle Ages to be between 30 and 50,000. McKay writes that they generally settled in the most desirable lands, such as the fertile river valleys of the Ebro and the Guadalquivir, as well as the lands around Toledo and the irrigated lands of the south and east. Although some lived on their estates, many were absentee landlords who spent most of their time in the large towns. As the ruling class, they tended to monopolise official positions and to emphasise their ethnic origins to keep themselves aloof, even though over the generations they often intermarried with the local Spanish and Berbers. To add to the ethnic mix of the peninsula, the Arabs imported a significant number of slaves from Eastern Europe, known as the Sakaliba. They served in a multitude of ways, as servants, harem girls, eunuchs, craftsmen, soldiers and as bodyguards. Most were brought in as children and raised as Muslims. The very large numbers of native Spanish who converted to Islam were called the Muwalads or Muladi. In spite of their profession of faith, they were also looked upon with suspicion and contempt by the Arab aristocracy. After a century under Islamic rule, the Muwalads grew resentful of not being given equal rights and frequently rebelled. Opposition developed both along the frontier zones and the heart of Al-Andalus, and for the first time the Asturian Christians tried to assist the rebels. When in 854 the Muwalads and Mozarabs of Toledo rose together in revolt, King Ordoño I, 850-866, promptly came to their assistance, but was defeated by the Emir's troops, who were then able to put down the revolt. The previously mentioned writer Eulogius appears to have been partly responsible for the unrest in Toledo. 
In 858, when he was discovered to be sheltering a young girl of Muslim parentage who had fled from her family to live as a Christian, he was sentenced to death. Both Eulogius and the young woman were beheaded as punishment. The Christians were free to practice their faith in Al-Andalus, but encouraging Muslims to become Christian was strictly prohibited. Among the most powerful families of the Mualads were the Banu Qasi. They were descended from native noblemen who converted to Islam at the time of the Arab conquest and became a client of the new rulers in order to retain their lands and privileges. Their adherence to Islam was more a matter of convenience than conviction. They controlled a large region on the frontier zone with the Christians, including the cities of Zaragoza, Tudela and Huesca, from where they enjoyed virtual de facto independence from the government at Cordova. The Banu Qasi generally maintained friendly relations with the son and successor of King Ordoño I, Alfonso III of Asturias, 866-910, later known as the Great. Alfonso III achieved his sobriquet by his efforts in pushing the Christian-Muslim frontier southwards. First he seized the town of Porto at the mouth of the river Duero, and then began to repopulate the region between the Minho and Duero. He also erected many castles on his eastern frontier to block Muslim incursions into that area. In this way, the region of Castile, land of castles, originated as the western bulwark of the Kingdom of Asturias. Alfonso III also felt the need to establish fortification along his northern coastline to resist the Viking attacks, which at this time were causing so much damage in Britain and northern France. Although the Vikings made occasional raids on Iberia, the peninsula was too far away from their homeland for any sustained campaign of raids. A more immediate threat to the Emirate from either the Vikings or Christians was a major uprising in the southernmost part of Al-Andalus in the modern province of Malaga. From the 880s, the rebel leader, a Mawalad by the name of Umar ibn Hafsun, waged a prolonged game of guerrilla warfare against the government. With the support of other rebels, both Mawalads and Mazarabs, Ibn Hafsun occupied fortresses and towns along the river Guadalquivir, directly threatening Cordova. Around 898 he took the bold step of becoming a Christian, thereby underlining his fundamental opposition to the Umayyads and all they stood for. His conversion backfired as it caused disunity among the rebels, and his influence waned. but still the rebellion continued into the first years of the 10th century. Umayyad authority of Al-Andalus had been severely shaken by both internal rebellions and external foes. It may even have collapsed entirely, but for a young new ruler who ascended the throne in 912, who would transform Muslim fortunes in the peninsula, Abdul Rahman III. Aged 20 on his ascension, he was of mixed blood, the son of a Frankish mother and grandson of a Basque princess. He had blue eyes, light skin and reddish hair, 
which we are told he dyed black to make himself look more like an Arab. Bilingual in Arabic and the Romance tongue of the natives, his origin and temperament enabled him to bring together the conflicting racial elements that had troubled Al-Andalus for so long. He pledged a pardon to all who agreed to submit to his authority, but acted harshly towards anyone who defied him. The Arabic tribal factions that had for so long disturbed the peace in Seville and other cities submitted to Al-Rahman and supported his campaign against his chief antagonist, Ibn Hafsun. The old rebel died in 917, and although his sons continued to fight, by 928 the last pockets of resistance had been crushed. Abdul Rahman then ordered the body of Ibn Hafsun to be dug up and then crucified at the gates of Cordova as a warning to future rebels. Towards those who did not oppose his rule, Abdul Rahman III employed a conciliatory approach. He guaranteed all his subjects full freedom to practice their own religion without harassment and also equal opportunity to participate in public administration. Policies which helped significantly to bring together the different elements of the population. Abdul Rahman III's act of greatest significance for Al-Andalus was his assumption of the title of Caliph on 16th of January 929. This was a bold move since it was an act of defiance against the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad. What it represented was the claim to be the successor of the Prophet Muhammad and therefore the sole leader and guide of the Muslim world and the faithful interpreter of the will of God as expressed in the Quran. Henceforth his name and that of his successors would be commemorated in public prayer in all mosques of Spain. One of the reasons for the decision was to encourage the loyalty and obedience of his subjects, but it was also most likely made in response to the emergence of the Fatimid Caliphate in 909 in North Africa. The Fatimids claimed descent from Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, and had overthrown the rulers of Algeria and Morocco. They began to become a serious threat to the Umayyads in Cordoba, not only by the possibility of a direct invasion, but as a focus for dissidents. The new title of Caliph was intended to assert claims upon the religious loyalties of those who might be tempted to side with the Fatimids, both in Spain and northwestern Africa. In addition, the Fatimids threatened the Mediterranean trading routes and trans-Saharan caravan routes, which Cordova relied on for much of its wealth. To protect against a naval attack, Abdul Rahman moved to take control of the North African ports of Melilla, Ceuta and Tangiers. Fortunately for the Umayyads though, the Fatimids were more interested in expanding eastwards into Egypt, and the immediate danger passed. Meanwhile, the Christian kingdom of Asturias was handicapped by the same problem as the contemporary Frankish kings, namely the repeated divisions of territories among sons and subsequent internecine warfare. Alfonso III was overthrown by his three sons in 909, who divided the kingdom between themselves. Garcia, the eldest son, established his court at Leon, which lay closer to the centre of the recently expanded kingdom than Oviedo. 
the growth of the local population and strengthening of the frontiers by his father had made such a move feasible, since the town was no longer exposed to direct enemy assault. After only four years, Garcia died. His brother, Ordoño II, seized the opportunity and added León to his own realm of Galicia. He and his successors were known thereafter as the kings of León, although the change of name of the kingdom from Asturias to León involved no essential change in the structure of the state. It was around this period that the kings of León began to give themselves the title of Imperator. This was an attempt to claim, in principle, the right of hegemony over the whole peninsula, as descendants of the Visigothic kings. Earlier in France, the memory of the United Kingdom of the Franks and the King Clovis had given the kings in Paris justification to claim overlordship over all of France. Likewise, the kings of Léon now expressed a claim to political supremacy over the whole of Spain, whether Christian or Muslim, and their intention to recover their ancient heritage. The next great king of Léon was Ramiro II, where after a period of further political instability and early deaths united Asturias, Galicia and Léon in 931. That same year, the city of Toledo was in revolt, not for the first time, against Cordova. The year after, 932, Abdel Rahman III was in a position to send troops to forcefully reimpose Umayyad authority on the city. The citizens made urgent appeals for assistance, to which Ramiro readily responded. Toledo was key for numerous reasons. Historically, it had been an important city in the Celtic period before the arrival of the Romans. More recently, it had been the capital of the Visigothic Kingdom and the historic centre of the Christian Church in Spain. The city was at the heart of a prosperous region with fertile soils and busy markets, as well as iron and copper mines. Toledo was famed for its high-quality steel since before Roman times and throughout the Middle Ages. Still today, steel blades are popular souvenirs from the city. In addition, Toledo holds great strategic importance in the centre of the peninsula, at the hub of local lines of communication, on a mountain top overlooking the River Tagus. For Abd al-Rahman, retaking control of the city was also essential as a matter of personal prestige. Ramiro was delayed by court matters, giving Abd al-Rahman time to fortify the defences of Toledo and close passage to the Leonese army. Ramiro gathered his troops together in the city of Zamora and passed through the Sierra Guadarrama looking for a place to establish a base of operation. He found it in the fortress of Marguerite, today Madrid. There on the banks of a small river, the Umayyads had built a watchtower in 880 to watch over the local mountains and as a base to launch attacks against the Christian kingdoms to the north. The army of Ramiro took the fortress and tore down its walls. The task of capturing Toledo, however, appeared far more daunting, especially when the caliph himself entered the city on the 2nd of August. Ramiro seemed not to have given up entirely as he maintained an army in the area during the autumn and winter, 
but when in early spring, 933, he heard that Abdul Rahman was leading an army northwards to attack his kingdom, Ramira was forced to react. He led his army to chase the Umayyad forces and met them at a place called Ozma. The Spanish chronicler Sampiro reports to us that, quote, the king, invoking the name of the Lord, gathered his army and prepared them for combat. And the Lord gave a great victory, so many of the enemy were killed and many thousands more taken prisoner and brought back to the capital in triumph. End quote. Sampiro goes on to say that after the victory, Ramir II gained further influence in the region by forming an alliance with the Muslim governor of the key northeastern city of Zaragoza, providing troops in return for payment. The caliph angrily accused the governor of Zaragoza of treachery and being responsible for the defeat at Osma, and assembled a massive army in order to reassert his authority in the region. Arriving with his army in Zaragoza, Abdul Rahman forced the governor to reaffirm his loyalty to the caliphate and enjoyed a successful offensive against the kingdom of Navarra. Next, the caliph headed towards the Leonese fortress at Zamora on the river Duero. The army of Ramiro II confronted the Muslims at the Battle of Simancas on the 1st of August 939, where he won a great victory and completed the route a few days later at Al-Handega, south of Salamanca. The humiliated caliph returned to Cordova in disorder, venting his rage by crucifying 300 of his officers as traitors to the faith. The Muslim army is said to have lost more than 20,000 men, constituting the greatest Christian victory up until that date. However, the original objective of capturing Toledo was not yet within sight. The caliph was able to ensure that the great city remained in Muslim hands for the time being. Today I have some exciting news about the podcast. It now has its own Facebook site, and it's called, of course, The History of Europe, Key Battles. I will use it to notify of new episodes and add information, pictures and links. I hope you can give it a like so that you can then keep up to date with anything new. I will still also continue to use the blog www.historyeurope.net which contains bibliography, maps and a quiz as well as copies of each audio file. So you can get in touch with me now, either by Facebook or by putting a comment on one of the posts in the blog or by writing to me at carl at historyeurope.net I'd like to thank one listener, Colin, for writing to me to correct my pronunciation in the last episode. The name of the tribe of Turks at the Battle of Manzikert spelt S-E-L-J-U-K, is pronounced, as is logical, Seljuk, not Celtic, as I said. And they certainly had nothing to do with the Celts. So feel free to get in touch if you have any questions or requests or or corrections or, or any comments at all. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to A History of Europe... Key Battles. 
Please join me next week for The Fall of Toledo, Part 2. Until then.